as you type to or turn to Genesis 1, okay, and this is unique if you're new, and a few of you are new, I got to meet some new people here tonight. Um, if, um, if, you're, if you're new, we normally walk through books of the Bible, verse by verse, line by line, word by word. In this six-week series, it's, it's going to be more what we would call top-positional, right? There's expositional, we walk, we walk through books verse by verse. There's a topical, we just take a verse here and there, and then there's top-positional, Okay. You're like, that's, I didn't know that was a word. I made it up, okay? Uh, Topositional just means we go to a passage and we, uh, we take a topic in that passage and we expose it throughout that passage. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at today the, the main idea of identity, which is incredibly important. I mean, think about how important your identity is. Your identity is so important, you can't get on an airplane without a... ID, right? I mean, you can't, uh, if we're ever going to be able to travel internationally again, I hope so, right? <laughs> but if we could ever travel internationally again, you need a passport. Um, if you're going to get to Costco, you need a membership card. If you're going to open up your phone, you need your thumbprint or you need to take off your mask and let it see your face, okay? Because it needs to see your face to let you in. Identity is so important that there is actually a category of crime called identity theft. So uh, they say last year, 15 million Americans, you know, in some form or fashion, got, um, got taken advantage of through identity theft. Now, my grandmother, not last year, but my grandmother was one of them. So my, my sweet grandmother, she died this year. She was 94 years old. My sweet grandmother, this is about five years ago, she gets a phone call from this guy. And he calls her. And I guess they do this to a lot of older men and women. They, he calls her, my grandmother. And he says, we've got your son. He's been selling drugs and we now have him. And she says... Oh, we've got your grandson. And she says, Kyle? <laughs> like, of all, she has many grandsons, but she said, Kyle? <laughs> and, you know, they're ready for this. So they go, yeah. Um, and they said, he's been selling drugs, and, um, and uh, she, you need to get $5,000 in gift cards. And, you, and you know, my poor grandma, she was like 90 at the time. So she calls my dad, her son. And she's telling this story. And my dad's like, he's a minister in North Carolina. He's not selling drugs. Um, <laughs> My dad said, I'm going to get you a whistle. So next time they call, you just blow the whistle into the phone as loud as possible. <laughs> anyway, just, uh, I, don't know, I don't think that would have made any difference, but that's what he said everyone to do. Um, so identity theft is this, this big idea, and it's because we, we it, it, you can be really powerful if you know who somebody is. And, and identity is an important concept. Tim Keller says two things come out of your identity. How you view yourself and where you find value both come out of your identity. So how do, how do you view yourself? Well, that's your identity. And this is interesting because Eastern culture versus Western culture, if you don't know this, I learned this uh, recently. In, in, in Eastern culture, your identity is more tied to your tradition or your family or your nation. This is why if you're Korean, you write your last name first and your first name last. Because, I mean, who cares who you are as an individual? It's about your family. But like as an American, we, all would, all, we would never do that. We would always write our first name first and our last name last because what's most important is our individuality. So this is this whole idea of identity. Do we find it in tradition, na nation, nationality, family, or Americans tend to find it more in our dreams and our desires and our personal decisions? Neither of those are going to be long-term, a healthy place to find your identity. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I want us to see this together. Genesis 1, verse 1. And here's the big idea for this whole series. You need to know whose you are and who you are. You need to know whose you are, God's, and who you are in Christ. That's the whole, whole point of the next six weeks. Um, and this identity is incredibly important. Look at Genesis 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, we have to start with God. We can't uh, start with ourselves to find an identity. We have to start, everything has to start with God. 
And God shows up, and the first thing he does, I won't read all of Genesis 1, okay? But if you read the first 25 verses of Genesis 1, here's what God does. God shows up, God sp- starts speaking, and God says that it's good. So this is, this is incredible. God names, God declares, God defines things. And then he calls it good. And then look what happens in verse 26. This is what happens in verse 26. It says this, Then God said, and this is the foundation of your identity to begin with, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. First thing is this. Your identity is received, not achieved. Your identity is received, not achieved. This is so incredible. What would it look like if you and I really believed that we were made in God's image? Like we genuinely believe that because I think what most people do is they try to make God in their image, right? That's the classic American idea. It's like, let me, you know, God probably thinks exactly like me about everything. That would be really convenient, you know? God thinks exactly like me about sin, about social issues, about what I'm doing in my life. And the cool thing is God agrees with me about everything that I'm doing. That's how the average American views God. We try to domesticate God and make him in our image. Instead, what the Bible says is God made us in his image, which this is such a powerful concept. You exist to make the invisible God visible to the world. I mean, that would be, you know, whenever I do think about that, and I'm not, I don't always think about it real consciously, but whenever I really think about that, I'm like, that's what I exist. I, I exist, God, the, one of the most foundational things about God is that he's invisible. So what would it be like if I got up every morning and said, here's what I do, I exist to make God visible to my children by the way that I act, by the way that I love them, by the way that I serve them and that I sacrifice for them. So God makes us in his image and then he speaks to us. He tells us what we're to do. This is amazing. So every other thing God creates, he makes a brief comment to, maybe. Most things he just declares are good. Animals, he briefly says, be fruitful, multiply. Humans are the only people that God, the only thing God makes that God sits down, talks to for a while and says, let me tell you a couple things. Which means that, that you can't know yourself by yourself. You need to have, this is, this is why you have to find our identity in God. You have to have somebody outside of you who never changes, who sees you rightly tell you who you are. I mean, think, let me say that again. You need somebody who is outside of you who will not die or change their mind, who can speak truth about you. God is the only one who can do that. And so he comes up and he starts speaking and he starts telling them who they are. Look at the first thing he says. This is in verse 28. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. The first thing God does as they're made in God's image is he ends up blessing them. The natural condition of man before God, before sin, was the blessing of God in their life. Be fruitful, multiply. We're doing a pretty good job of that. We're now about seven billion of us on earth, okay? Seven billion of the image of God on earth. It says this, but here's the truth. We end up becoming sinners before God. Flip over to Genesis chapter three. Now normally go verse by verse. I'm gonna jump around to show you a couple things. Genesis chapter three, verse one says this. Now the serpent, so they had a perfect identity as image bearers of God, knowing what they should do, knowing what they shouldn't do. But then I want you to see what happens to our identity. Verse one of chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Crafty means he's very good at being very bad. Um, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, 
And this is what's going to happen. People are going to come into your life. They're going to question the authority of God's word and your identity about what God has said about you. So here's what happens. He said to the woman, did God actually say? So I don't know, maybe your friend will ask you that question. Maybe a college professor will ask you that question. Maybe non-Christian parents will ask you that question. Did God really say? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She actually misquotes God's word and adds to it. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. She begins to add to God's word. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, denying any consequences. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is the key. Verse six and seven. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then verse seven describes the current human condition of every person on earth. Verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The the idea of self-awareness. But, but a kind of self-awareness of our own shame, of our own vulnerability, um, of our own nakedness, of our own embarrassment. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what happens is Adam and Eve sin, rebel. They no longer know who they are. They're no longer secure in the love of God. They, were they naked beforehand? Yeah, but now they were exposed, and they were aware of their sinfulness and their brokenness. So what do they try to do? They try to cover it themselves. Right? And, and I'll re- continue to read the passage, but there's several things they do. They blame each other. They blame God. They try to hide from each other. That's part of the fig leaves and the loincloths. They try to hide from God. And what, what they do with the fig leaves and the loincloths is they try to begin to create an identity for themselves. Now, let me just stop and say, here's some key places, as I've thought about it this week, some key places where people try to find their identity. And, and, and when I say any of these, the, in and of themselves, they could help explain you, but none of these things should ultimately define you. So, you know, there's certain things that can help explain, you know, who you are and what you struggle with and, I don't know, why the temptations that you have are or why you are the way you are, but, but they shouldn't ultimately define you. Let me just give you a few that I, I see people lean on and I, I find myself leaning on today. Uh, number one, personality test. I mean, you're like, I can't believe you would say that, you know? I'm a, I, I'm a number six and that offends me, you know? I would know. Um, but there, there is, and we're not against personality tests. We've used them on our staff. Uh, we, it's, they can be really, really helpful to give you a certain language. Um, but what, what happens is we begin to define ourselves by our personality. I remember I saw this, my wife, she was part of this organization at one point, um, this was years ago, and um, it, it, long story short, we ended up going to this event, and everybody in that organization was all into the Keller personality test, whatever it is, you can Google it. And I remember I met them, and they said, oh, you're definitely an orange. I'm like, stop it, you know what I mean? <laughs> but it was just like, they wanted, to, they wanted to put me in a box, they wanted to define themselves, our personality test, how about who we are online? I mean, there, you know, we, we can ultimately and often be defined by, you know, how many likes do we get? How many comments do we get? How many shares do we get? I mean, you know, I've got to be honest with myself. I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird, you know, you all have different roles that you play in different things, but, you know, every week I say something and then it's recorded online and then I can see how many people view it. But I never look at how many people view it, you know, of course not, you know. But, you, you know, you look, you look at it sometimes, you're like, okay, 250, and then you're like, and JD's is 250,000. Okay, JD Greer. <laughs> You know, or whatever. It's just like you could, you could get discouraged. You can start comparing. You can start competing. You can start being defined by how many likes and how many shares and how many comments and all of that. We love you, Carl. Oh, the <laughs> great feedback. No, thank you. Um, and, and so, you know, you can get defined by that. You can be defined by your past, right? 
I mean, it's, you can be defined by what happened to you. You can be defined by your college years. We can be defined by our age and stage, right? It's like, well, I'm a college student, so I should probably get drunk and break commandments, you know. Uh, I'm single, so I should be selfish and sleep around. Uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a new parent, so my whole life is going to, for the next 18 years, revolve around my kid. You know, whatever it is, I'm an empty nester, so I've given up all of my time, and uh, it's now time for me to retire and coast. We can find our identity in our, in our age and stage. Um, we can find our identity, identity in some sin struggle that we have, right? Uh, I'm the porn addict, I'm the alcoholic, I'm the workaholic, I'm the lazy person. Um, a, a big area, I mean, this, this is such an important topic today because people can find their identity in all their different tribes, right? I mean, people can find their identity in, in and I, I say tribal, we become so tribal in the sense that you can find your identity in your political party. Uh, you, you can find your identity uh, primarily in your skin color. Um, you can find, a big place that people try to find their identity today is in their, their sexual identity. This is one of the reasons why LGBTQ keeps getting longer. It really does. It, it, I mean, you can actually read the history of it. It keeps getting longer, and there will be more letters added to it, and I'm not making fun of it. What I mean is, if you place such an importance on your sexual identity, then you're going to keep having different options for it. This is why they say the two largest options that are increasing are the Q and the B. I'm questioning I'm queer or I'm bisexual. I don't know what I am, but there's so much pressure to figure out what I am that I'll just put myself in that position. And, none of, and again, these identities can help explain some of your struggles, some of your sin patterns, some of your backgrounds, but they don't ultimately need to define you. And to see what needs to define us, we need to go all the way to the book of Romans. And this is the last place we're going to look today. If you look at me at the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, we'll be here next week as well. Romans chapter 1 tells us where we need to go to find our identity. So we're created by God, but sin distorts our identity. Other people try to tell us who we are. That happens today. And then I want us to go to Romans to see this idea. Your identity needs to be shaped by the gospel, that the gospel needs to be the foundation and what forms your identity. Um, Romans 1 verse 15. Romans 1 15. This is the apostle Paul. This was his most, this is his longest letter. This is his most theologically dense letter. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, this. So I am eager. He writes this, by the way, to a bunch of Christians. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says that, that this is an interesting thought. Paul is coming to a bunch of Christians. I mean, the church is, that church was all, from what we know, all Christians, maybe some young Christians, maybe some old Christians, maybe some new Christians, maybe some very mature Christians. And Paul says, what I'm eager to do is I'm eager to come to you and I'm eager to preach the gospel. You know, I mean, what, why is he so eager? Well, because we love to share things that are changing our life. I mean, I, I do, right? I mean, don't you love to share? I don't know. It could be like, man, this great diet I'm on, or it could be, you know, hey, I saw this incredible show, or I, I took this incredible vacation, you know, I, I, I bought this incredible technological device, and I just want to share with you about this resource or whatever. This, I want to share about this relationship. I met this guy, I met this girl, and it's changing and transforming my life. And out of the overflow of that, we want to share. And so Paul says, I'm incredibly eager to share with you the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? This is the heart of our church, and, and you know, if you've been around for any amount of time, hopefully you, you've heard us talk about the gospel. I want, I want you to see what Paul says about it, and then we're going to get more into what exactly it is. Look at verse 16. Paul says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, Paul had many reasons to be ashamed of the gospel. I mean, it, it, because it brought so much pain and so much loss into his life. 
If you read the sufferings of Paul, he suffered enormously because of this gospel message. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I want to talk about what the gospel is. The gospel is the events of Christ and their explanation of what they mean for you. That's what it is. The gospel, the whole idea is you need to be defined by something and it, or actually by someone, and it's what Jesus Christ has done for you. So let's talk about the gospel. The gospel is the events of Christ. You know, there are many events of Christ, but you can talk about the event of his sinless life. You can talk about the event of his, of his death on a cross. You can talk about the event of his resurrection. But you may want to ask the question, what do those events mean? Because if you're like me, I mean, I grew up, you know, nominal Roman Catholic, you know, for the first 16 years of my life. I was in a Catholic church. I heard, you know, he rose, he died, he's coming again. I saw the crucifixion. I, didn't, I, I, I never knew what it meant. It wasn't until my buddy Joe, who was a year older than me in high school, basically said, hey man, listen, Jesus Christ lived a sinful life, or lived a sinless life because you're a sinner and somebody had to live a perfect life because God requires a perfect life. And Jesus lived a perfect life because you can't. And I thought, well, that, that makes sense, you know? And, and, and hey, the reason that Jesus Christ died is that sin needs to be punished and God needs to be just. And so God punished Jesus. And when you trust in him, it counts as your punishment. I said, well, no one ever told me that. I heard about the events. I, I saw the Jesus film. I saw the passion of the Christ. No one ever explained what it meant to me. And oh, hey, the reason that he rose from the dead was it was his way to show that he had victory over death and that one day we will have victory over death. I'm like, I didn't hear any of this. Or maybe I did, I just never put it together. And he says, it's that that is the power of God. You know, the power, what is, what, you, you see that in verse 16, he says, the gospel is the power of God. You know, it's the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis is where we get the word dynamite, you know? And what is power? You know, power is the ability to change something, right? The more power you have in a family or an organization or an industry or whatever is, well, you know, how much change can you make in it? Well, that's how much power you have. And he's saying the gospel is the power of God. And whenever I think about that, I think about it, how it's the power of God to change people's life, their legacy, their, their eternity. You know, I, I talk often about Billy Graham. I just love Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham died a couple years ago. But if, you know, if you don't know who that is, he, you know, outside of the Apostle Paul, probably the second most famous evangelist in the history of the church. And I was watching this documentary on him. And it was just all about how he's a farm boy from North Carolina who he went all over the world and he preached the exact same message everywhere he went. And I was watching this and it's really, you know, there's several documentaries you can watch, but the one documentary was about when the Soviet Union existed and it was about when it was in the 80s or whatever it was, and it was when Billy Graham flew to Moscow. And they were like, it was the first time, you know, anyone had ever been behind the Iron Curtain. And anyway, there's the, they showed this video of Billy Graham and I'm watching it. And he stands up in front of the, this entire group of people. And I can't do an impression of Billy Graham, but just in, his, in the way that only he could say it, he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he just begins to share the gospel. And he says, all that I am in this life and in the next, I will be because of Jesus Christ. And I came here to talk about the cross and the blood of Christ. And you just see people get converted and you see lives change. And it was this simple message. You know, they, there was one time Billy Graham tells a story and I'm just using him because he was so powerfully used by God. They say roughly 2.2 million people came to faith in Christ through his ministry. He tells a story one time about going to Cambridge. He said, I went to Cambridge and I was, he said, it was early in his ministry. And he said, I felt, 
really like I had to talk about Nietzsche and I had to talk about Aristotle and I had to talk about Socrates. And, and he said after about three nights of that, one of my friends said, just preach the blood. Just talk about the cross. Just talk about repentance and faith. And he said, so that's what I did that night. He said 400 people came to Christ. It's just, it's just a commitment to say, you know, we're going to be about the simple, powerful message of the gospel. You know, that Christ lived, that Christ died, that Christ rose again, that Jesus is alive and well. He's still saving sinners. He's still making disciples. And Paul says, I'm never going to be ashamed of that message. There's a lot of things to be ashamed of. You know, and I wish it's true. It's easy to say that, but you know, you ever feel ashamed of the message? You know, I was thinking about this whole thing of identity and I was thinking about how as a pastor, again, I'm not trying to use all pastor illustrations here, but just as a pastor, I, 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 I feel like I put too much of my identity in being a pastor because I'll be too happy about it in front of some people and too embarrassed about it by others. Does that make sense? It's like sometimes if, it's, if I'm around certain people, I'll be very excited that I'm a pastor and I want to tell you that, and you know, this is a Christian environment and great. And then other times my dad will be golfing and my dad will go, I want to introduce you to my son. He's a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm like, dad, dad. <laughs> you know, and then everybody tells me the, the, the one minister they know in their family and they stop cursing and they have, you know, that's the end of that conversation. Um, <laughs> but, but every time that happens, it reminds me, why am I so... I'm either, I'm probably finding my identity too much in a pastor because I, I'm, I'm too ashamed of it in one moment and I'm too happy in the other moment. And Paul says, I, I, want to, I want to find my identity in what Christ has done for me. And then look at this, this is interesting. He says, it is the power of God for salvation. Um, uh, end of verse, end of the verse says this, for the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Here's the last thing. Your identity is lived out by faith. Your identity is lived out by faith. In other words, the way that we're going to live out our identity, and this is what we're going to talk about for the rest of this series, is we live out our identity by faith in Christ and what he's done for us and what that means for us. And we, we live our identity out in Christ, not in and ourselves. Like, it's interesting. When 9-11 happened, I had a friend. He was at a university in North Carolina. Um, he was a campus minister at a university in North Carolina. He said when 9-11 happened, a couple days later, he said they got the student body together. This was at a non-Christian school. He said, and they sang the song together, we are the ones we've been waiting for. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It's like, this is who, this is who we're waiting for? Each other? You know, but, but it was, it was, it, he said it was a really eerie feeling that they were singing about they were the answer to their problems. And what's interesting, this, this verse, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, is, is, you know, many consider this, that we're not going to preach right now through the whole book of Romans, but many consider it the theme verse of the book of Romans. And it's very interesting. Do you see what it says happens in the gospel? It says, in the gospel, I want you to look at verse 17 one more time. 17a, beginning of it says this. For in it, it being the gospel, for in it, the, look what it says, the love of God is revealed. That's actually not what it says. When it mentions one characteristic of God, that's revealed in the gospel. It's that God is righteous. And I want to talk about this for a little bit because this is super deep. And put your, you know, keep your mask on, but put your thinking cap on, okay? Um, <clears throat> because I want to talk about what the righteousness of God is. It's a couple things. This is, this is a very, very deep idea in Scripture it's that the gospel is the way that God shows that he's righteous. Now, what does righteous mean? That he always does what is right. And so you go, well, how does that happen? Because the word righteousness there, it means three things in the book of Romans. 
in, 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 in Christianity. The first thing it means is that how God decided to deal with sin was completely righteous. The way that he dealt with sin was, I mean, think about this. Um, he did not deal with sin lightly. He did not say it's actually easy to forgive sin. It's actually very hard to forgive sin. I, I, I don't forget sin. I don't forgive it easily. I don't sweep it under the rug. I don't act like it's not a big deal. That the gospel is God's answer to God's problem. God's problem is that he is angry with sinners. He has wrath against them. They need to be forgiven. He sends his son to bear the wrath of God and pay the penalty for every sinner who would ever trust in him. So this is amazing. God forgives sin completely, but the way he does it, he's shown to do it the right way. He's shown to not take sin lightly. He's shown to be righteous. The second thing it means is that what the gospel does is it makes us righteous. It makes us, it's, it's what, it, I'll give you some old theological words. Um, it's what's called an alien righteousness. It, and that was a word that theologians came up a long time ago to talk about. It's a righteousness that's outside of us. But this is interesting. There was, a, there was a phrase, and I won't be able to, I was working on pronouncing it this week and I, I couldn't get it. it, it it's, it's a German phrase that Luther said. It, it's something like, s, s, nope, I'm not gonna try. Um, <laughs> um, it, but the phrase means that you can look it up sometime. It, it's a very famous phrase. And basically what it means is simultaneously sinner and righteous. And they said that they would say that there were several themes that came out of the Reformation in the 1500s with Martin Luther, that monk, and that one of the main themes of the gospel is that you are, this, this is such a, an important part of your identity as we think about this, that you and I, if you're a Christian, if you trust in Christ, you are simultaneously, at the same time, a sinner and righteous. And th why is that so important? Well, because it gives you a realistic view of yourself. You know, it's like, you know, you, you, if somebody really, if, I don't know, most of us don't, are not that self-conscious about who we are in Christ. But if you are, it, it makes you very, very humble without, being, without going into despair. Because you're like, well, I'm, you know. It's like none of us should really be surprised what's going on in the world right now. Like, we're the last people in the world, or we're the, we might be the last people in the world to go, well, I actually have a worldview, and I actually have an understanding that could understand plagues and pestilence and riots and racism and economic fallouts and division, and depression. No, I mean, nothing should surprise us. It doesn't mean it shouldn't sadden us. We should be like, well, you know, I actually have a, I have a category for that in my theological mind because I know the Bible and I know we live in a broken, fallen world, so that, that fits. So I, I'm a sinner, but, but I don't need to be ultimately depressed by that because I'm also righteous in Christ. But I would, I would never be prideful about that because it's, it's a righteousness that's outside of me. It's a righteousness that's, it's a gift righteousness. That's another word they use. Alien righteousness, gift righteousness. It's a righteousness that has been given to me freely. God gave me what he required of me. And it's an incredible gift. And so with the way that we relate to one another is as sinners who've been saved by God's grace. Sinners who've been changed, transformed, which leads to the third idea of righteousness. The third idea of righteousness, one is that God, God is righteous in how he forgives us. The second is that God makes us righteous, declaring it outside of us, it's a gift. The third is that across time, God will actually make us righteous. And that's, that's, the, that's the promise of, of, we call it sanctification. It's incremental, progressive righteousness 
that happens over the course of your life and is completed either at your death or at the return of Christ. And so this is what Paul says. He says, I, this is what I rejoice in. He says, so what, then look at uh, the last half of verse 17. He says, from faith for faith. What does that mean? A lot of people debate that. that what that means is all, the whole entire Christian life is lived by faith. And we always want to be really clear here about what things mean and what they don't mean. The definition of faith, and this is, arises right out of Scripture, it arises out of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, is that um, faith is the ability to see the invisible world according to the written word of God. It's the ability to, it's like, well, I actually see sin, and I see heaven and hell, and I see Jesus Christ risen, reigning, and returning, and I see a future final judgment. And I see Christ dying for me on the cross. And I see that I can be forgiven of my sins and I can be reconciled to God. I can see that entire invisible world. I see it according to the written word of God. He's, that's why he says here, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So how do we live by faith today? A couple things. First, I think for us to live by faith, we have to be in God's word. You know, one of, the, one of the, the discouraging things that's happening in a season like this is, and you know, it's, all, it's always hard to tell by the stats that people put out and there's the studies that people do, but a, a lot of Christians, even in this season, have not been in God's word and they are also out of community completely. Um, <clears throat> the second thing we have to be, we have to be in God's word, we have to be around God's people. You know, you can't know yourself by yourself. And we need to be in community. And I, again, this is a very, this is why I believe at, at some level what's going on is demonic. Because it's taking people out of community. And it's not allowing us to be, um, that's not a statement about any, any political thing or any governmental thing. That's just a statement in general, what's going on in our world. We are unable to gather and be in each other's presence in normal, natural ways like everybody's been able to do throughout all of human history. So we gotta be in community. And the third thing is, we, we need to be able to preach the gospel to ourselves, you know? And I, I have a friend who his, what he does every morning. Every morning he says, when I'm in the shower, I just preach the gospel to myself. I just remind myself that God created me and I apply that to whatever situation I'm going in. Maybe I'm discouraged about something. Maybe I don't feel like I've got the abilities. Maybe I don't feel like I've got the gifts. Maybe I feel like junk because I sinned last night. I just remind that. I remind myself that I'm a sinner, but made righteous before Christ. I remind myself of repentance and faith. And so, you know, he, this is what we need to do because here's what happens. If you go back to Genesis chapter three, you don't need to go there right now. But what happens is, is it, by the end of the chapter, Adam and Eve, they realize that their loincloths and their fig leaves are inadequate. So much so that by the end of Genesis chapter three, it says that God covered them. And it says that God covers them by making a sacrifice. That's how you cover somebody. He gave them animal skins. So I, I don't, if you've never heard this before, it's a very interesting thought. The first sacrifice in the Bible is done by God to cover the shame and nakedness of a people, which is the first foreshadowing of Christ in the Bible, that Jesus Christ would come, he would be sacrificed, he would be naked so that we could be clothed and so that we could be forgiven. And what it looks like to, to live more and more of the Christian life is to be more and more defined in your life daily by what Jesus Christ has done for you. How you are a sinner, but you're made righteous because Christ lived the perfect life. Jesus died in your place, and Jesus rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death. So in the next 
five weeks. I hope you'll, you'll come back. I hope you'll continue to watch online. We're going to look at the five identities of a disciple in Christ that flow out of being righteous in Christ. We're going to look at being a worshiper. We're going to look at being a family member uh, of the family of God. We're going to look at being a witness, at being a steward, and at being a servant. I think it's going to be an incredible series that's going to, in a world that's so confused about who they are, we're going to bring some clarity about what God has said about who we are in Christ. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for this unique evening to begin to come back together and to begin to take our next step as a church. Lord, I pray that you would help us to experience the power of the gospel in this season. Lord, I pray for, for us, some of us, we just need to experience the power of the gospel in some area of sin and struggle that we have. We need to just say, Lord, I need the power of the gospel. I need to believe what you've said. Lord, I pray for the power of the gospel to redeem and restore and reconcile marriages and families. There's so much division in our country. Lord, I pray for a united church. Lord, I pray that we would never be, a, uh, a, we would be a church that is never ashamed of the gospel. Lord, there's a lot of things that we can be ashamed of. We can be ashamed of things we've done. We can be ashamed of things that have been done to us. Lord, there are many things that we are embarrassed about, but may we never be ashamed of Jesus Christ and his message. Lord, help us to really live out of an identity, Lord, an identity of who we are in Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen.